Welcome to the Alcorn Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. Right into the Word of God today. Um, if you're here for the first time, We've been in a sermon series in the book of Revelation, very, very popular book, uh, an infamous book in the Bible. And people have lots of opinions on it and read it for different reasons. And so we've been um, in a series called Taking the Church Back. And uh, John, John the Beloved, uh, one of Jesus' disciples, is on an isle, uh, island called Patmos. And he has been exiled there. He, he's been exiled to the Isle of Patmos for his his beliefs and his testimony about the Lord Jesus. And because of, because of that, he's on this island by himself, but he has a, a vision of the Lord. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, uh, comes to him on the Isle of Patmos, and he um, gives him this glorious vision um, of Jesus' returns and all the things that, that is going to happen. But um, what he does at the outset of the letter is he writes... Uh, seven letters to seven different churches. And, and I think if we read these, it will help us to have a right understanding of the church's role in the world, what we are supposed to do, uh, who we are supposed to be. The church gets a bad reputation in, in culture for the most part. And so, so my job here, um, not just as a pastor, but as a Christian, is to, is to really highlight what the church is is, is supposed to be, what a church is supposed to be. And so when, when we say taking the church back, we, we're recovering the beauty of the bride of Christ, which is, which is the church. And so today uh, we get to a church called uh, Theatira. Everybody say Theatira. Theatira. Say Theatira. Theatira. I'm trying to help you. So when you're reading the Bible to your coworkers, you don't mispronounce words. And you look real smart and you look real safe and, and you look real credible when, when we pronounce these things right. Like if you, the letter from last week, if, if you don't have the proper pronunciation, you would think it's um, pergamon, but it's pergamum, right? It's pergamum. We, we learned that last week. And so, so I, I just want to teach, but also inspire at the same time. Um, and let me give you a little backdrop. The, the book of Revelation, right? Some people read it because they, they're trying to decipher when, when Jesus is coming back. And so they're trying to line up world events and earthquakes and, and tsunamis and political uh, uh, things that happen in, in politics around the world and, and who's the president. And if the president does this and this thing is legislated, then we can kind of tell if Israel is doing this and, and the Israelis and the Palestinians are going at it. If they stop, then here's what it means and, and, and what the book of Revelation is, is meant for is not to, to clear any of that up. It's actually meant to encourage the church and support the church while we wait on the return of Christ. We don't know when he will come back, but, but we have a responsibility to live intentionally in light of Christ's return. We are called to show the world what the glory of Christ and what life in Christ looks like while we wait for the Lord. And while we are being who we are supposed to be, while we are this salt and light, the world will be inevitably attracted to who we are and join us as we advance the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? And so we, we hear the word revelation. It literally comes from this word apocalypse. You've heard of, of the word apocalypse. There's a movie in the 70s called Apocalypse Now. Uh, Tupac had an album in the 90s. Don't go stream this. He had an album in the 90s called Tupacalypse Now. But the word apocalypse just means an unveiling. 
It means something is being uncovered. Something is being revealed. And what is being revealed in the book of Revelation is God is allowing us to see things for what they really are. This is what we're doing. So we get here. Today we are at the central letter of all the seven and the longest letter of the seven. And Jesus has the most to say to the church at Theatira. He has the most to say to the church at Theatira. So we're going to read this together because since, since COVID, we, we hadn't really read out loud together. And I like the sound of the saints reading words um, and reading the scripture out loud because it's, it says in the book of Revelation, the beginning, that, that those who read this will be blessed. And so I'm going to add a little blessing to your life. Uh, everybody can use a little blessing, right? And so we don't, y'all don't, y'all don't, okay, fine. Your life is great already. You're living your best life now. All right, forget it. But we're going to read this together out loud. Men, that includes you. Don't be too cool for school. You know, guys don't like reading out loud. You ever go to, you in elementary school and they ask the dude to read out loud and he like, bro, I barely know my name. Well, well, everybody knows their name here and everybody knows how to read. And so we're going to read this out, Thea Tira. Say it out. All right, so we're going to read this out loud, and we're going to meet a woman that you've heard about. If you've been in church for any amount of time, you've heard about this, this strange woman, and sometimes people accuse people of being this woman, but we're going to learn about her today. So let's read Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Let's read. Now, Jesus Christ. Ready? Read. Y'all read weak. Loud. Yeah. Mm. Come on, finish strong. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you today for, for your presence, Lord. Thank you that we just have this opportunity to come together to worship with each other, to worship you, Lord. Uh, we thank you that, that you're here with us today, God. And so um, my prayer today is that you would grow us in the faith, that you would literally transform us um, as we sit under the teaching of the word of God. And so, Lord, I pray that we're not just people who are watching and spectating today, but I pray that we participate in what you have to say 
to your church today. And so, Lord, I pray that you not only inform us, um, but that you just transform and work on our hearts, God. Ultimately, the goal of the Christian life is to bring glory to you and to be made more like Jesus. And so today I pray that's what you do in our hearts and in our lives. And so, Lord, I, I just pray today, if there's a person here who's not a follower of Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would just touch their hearts, that you would convict them today, God, that they will come to faith today, Lord. And I pray for that Christian today who is struggling in their faith, God, that you would blow wind in their sails, uh, that you would just be a support for them, God, that you would strengthen them uh, while they live out this Christian life. And so, Father, we, we just give you glory and honor today. We pray your son, Jesus, would be made known today, God. And so, Father, we thank you, we praise you, we glorify you, we bless you. It's in Christ's name we pray, and the people of God said amen. You may be seated in the Lord's, in the Lord's presence. From the sermon series, Taking the Church Back, my sermon title is a very popular colloquial phrase uh, that I think that you should put in your toolkit uh, if you are a Christian, you definitely should have this phrase in your toolkit. And this phrase, my sermon title today is, not today, Satan. You, you should be armed and equipped with a not today, Satan. You should have that in your back pocket. You, you ever just experience something in a day or you're in a season of life where Things are just happening to you and every, everything is going left and people are trying you, whether it be uh, friends or family members or, Lord forbid, co-workers. And, and you just get to a point where you, you kind of assess things for what they are and you, you just say, not, not today, Satan. I'm, I'm not arguing with you. I'm, I'm not fighting to you. I, I'm not about to keep texting you back and forth today. I, I'm, I'm, what you're essentially saying is I am not going to tolerate whatever it is that you are trying to entice me to do. And, and so I, I think that we, we, we need to learn to say it's not in the Bible, it's not a phrase, it's not a scripture, but I think it serves us well that, that at some point when we're tired of putting up with stuff and we have no more patience and no more tolerance for nonsense that we just collectively say, not, not today, Satan. You, you'll learn why this is important when we learn about the church at Theatira. Let me give you a little bit of background on this particular city and this church. Theatira is actually located, it's a little... Maybe uh, uh, obscure city uh, that is located on a main route from Pergamum, who we studied before, and, and the church at Sardis, who we will study, study soon. It, it's kind of like located in, in the middle, and, and what Theatira is known for, in a sense, is that they are a, a commercial center. They, they have this leather industry, they have a copper industry, they have a wool and thriving textile industry. Uh, they are known for making these dyes that, that people use. And so it, it is an, a very industrial place. They don't have all the flashing lights and politics and all of that kind of stuff like we learned about at Ephesus where it's kind of like New York meets LA or, or like uh, uh, Pergam per Pergamon where, where it's like Washington DC. No, this is like a somewhat of a industrial city. This is like Springfield, Illinois, or it's like Cincinnati, Ohio, not really anywhere that you go on a vacation to. 
However, they have working class people in Theatira. If you are a studier of scripture and you, and you read the New Testament, uh, th- there in, in Acts chapter 16, when, the, when Paul, the church planter, the apostle Paul, is led to uh, go to Macedonia, which is located in Europe, when he's led to evangelize Europe, uh, he meets some uh, people who are outside, some, some, some God-fearing people who are outside. And one of the people, it is believed that he first leads to the Lord, is a business person who is a seller of purple goods. And some believe that the first person to be evangelized on the continent of Europe is a lady by the name of Lydia. That's important because Lydia, the Bible says, is a seller of purple goods. She is a well-to-do woman, and she invites Paul and Timothy to stay at her house that lets you know that she is a businesswoman and she has her own money and her own stuff going on. But here's why I tell you that, because she is from Theatira. And so one of the most interesting things about that is in Theatira, they have what's called trade guilds. They have trade guilds. If you're here and maybe you're from the, from the Northeast, You've heard of the union before, or unions. There are they are labor unions that take place. And so trade guilds are similar to uh, labor unions where they protect the pay and the benefits and the well-being of the employees. And so they have these trade guilds for all the different industries and theatera. And so here's the thing. When you become a part of a trade guild, you have to pay a fee. You pay dues. You have to uh, agree to what they agree to. You have to believe what they believe. And you have to go to the meetings and do what they do because you are a part of an association now. And so this is what is happening in the trade guilds. But here is the one thing about the trade guild. The good thing is if you're a part of it, your financial situation is probably going to be pretty good because they are looking out for you as a worker. And so it would behoove you to be a part of a trade guild. The only thing is that you have to stand for what they stand for. And the reason why I'm telling you this is that every trade guild in Theatira had to pay homage to pagan gods. And so each trade guild was actually steeped in idolatry. If you wanted to be a part of a trade guild, the trade guilds were steeped in idolatry. So a membership required participation at an idolatrous pagan festival where they would pay homage to a deity by eating food, sacrifice to idols, and then some sort of sexual ritual that you would have to participate in. And so if you are part of a guild, to not participate in the festival was career suicide. And if it's career suicide, then it probably means financial suicide for you. You undercut your ability to make a living if you don't participate in the pagan idolatry that comes along with being a member of a trade guild. Well, this is a problem because if you are a Christian, here's what you know. God has forbidden us to eat food that we know has been sacrificed to idols. Not only that, God also despite what the culture tells you, forbids us in participating in any form of sexual immorality. And so if you're not thinking, I want to help you think. If you are living in Theatira and you are a business person or you work for a large company and you are trying to come up, what are you going to do if you are a father who needs to provide for his family? 
or a single mother who needs to take care of her children? Or what if you are a burgeoning college student who plans to have a successful career, therefore it would behoove you to join one of these organizations in order to maximize your opportunities and give you a leg up for the future? The problem is, is that you're Christian, though. And so you have to ask the question to yourself, do you capitulate, participate, tolerate, and ultimately compromise, or do you trust in the Lord to provide? What do you do when partnership with the world means career and social advancement, but following Jesus says you can't participate? Do you choose financial gain and career gain, or do you decide to follow Christ? Do you tolerate what the culture presents or do you trust in the Lord? This is a question that some of us need to ask ourselves today. Will you hold on to your own way and do your own thing? Or will you hold on to what the Lord has given us to hold on to? And this is the pressure. And these are the decisions that the church in Theatira is faced with. Not, not just from the outside, but also from inside the church. But I got to give it to them. This is one of the best commendations to all the churches. These people are genuine followers of the Lord Jesus. They are, they are genuine believers. They're not faking it. They're not just doing the stuff, but not living it. They are actually genuine, authentic followers of the Lord Jesus. Not only are they doing the right things, but they also have the right motives because in God's economy, it doesn't matter what you do if your motives are off. But, but, but they got the right motives. And so when, when Jesus writes to them through John, he says, thus says the son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine, fine bronze. And so you're probably like, man, I don't know what that is. I've never seen anybody with fiery eyes and I don't even know anybody with real bronze feet. So, so, so what does that mean? It's just simply messianic language. Jesus referred to or it was prophesied that the son of God, this messianic son of God will come in the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, I'm here. I'm, I'm here. Th th this, is, th this, is, this is me. And so when John says, this, this dude, I saw this resurrected Jesus and his eyes are like a fiery flame. His eyes are piercing. He, he, he can see everything. He has these piercing eyes. Let, let me give you an example. Um, when I was a kid growing up in church, Sometimes the kids used to sit in the back, and I remember my mom was in the choir, and she sat up in the choir stand, and my mom had a rule, no talking in church. And so when me and my little friends would be talking, her eye could pierce through the whole congregation. I could be talking to my friend, and I just hear, feel some hit me on my face. And she's looking at me like, change my whole behavior. And what I realize is, even when I think she ain't looking, she's watching. She, she sees everything. And, and, and so, so it also says he's got feet like bronze. It means he's absolutely pure. pure. He's glorious. It is a, a glorious sight. And so here's what I want you to take away from this. If this man has eyes that are fiery, uh, fiery, like a fiery flame, this means he can see everything that's not bad, that's actually good, because that means that all the good that you do, even when nobody appreciates you, God will never overlook you. 
God sees everything. God sees your faithfulness. God sees your endurance. God sees you turning down temptation. God sees you hanging in there for the faith. God sees your good works when nobody else sees it. When you're in the car by yourself and a transient person is on the street and nobody else is around and you wish the church people would see you doing these good deeds, but nobody's there and you give them $5, God is watching you. God, God will not overlook anything. Not only will he not overlook the good stuff, God is, it, it's not lost on God and it's not out of his gauge when bad things happen to you. God, God sees your suffering. God sees your pain. God sees your tears. God sees your struggle. Don't ever feel like you are by yourself and nobody knows because when nobody else is watching and you can't even put words to your pain, God sees you. That's an encouragement to somebody today because you're in a struggle in your faith. You're in a struggle in your life. You're in a struggle of and with your finances. You're trying to be as faithful as you know how to be. You're trying to be a faithful spouse and a faithful parent and a faithful coworker and a faithful son and a faithful daughter. And you feel like nobody sees you and nobody appreciates you. Well, God, G- Jesus, with his fiery flaming eyes, sees everything. He sees everything. And he also sees everything that's happening in the church. He says, I know your works. And when he says, I know them, it doesn't mean that he knows of them. He knows their works intimately. He says, I know your love, your faithfulness, your service, your endurance. I know that your last works are even greater than the first works. Jesus is aware of the good things that they are doing in his name. He knows the sacrifices that the believers are making when you are at a a serve event on a weekend and you'd rather sleep in because you had a long week. He knows your works when you are loving the unlovable. He knows your works when you are serving those that you would probably rather not naturally serve. He sees your service. He knows when it's hard and you want to give up and walk away from everything. He sees your endurance. This is a model church in this regard. They love. It says love first. Remember what he said to the church at Ephesus? You know his uh, 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 thing, his condemnation of them was? He says that you, you abandon your first love. Well, the church at Theatira didn't abandon their first love. They had the right foundation, which was the love of God and the right motivation. You see, we as Christians, we're not doing stuff because it's about us. We're loving people because we know that God loved us first. Our love is a response to the, to the love of God. And he says, I see your love. I see your faithfulness. The word faithfulness there means you've kept your faith even in difficult times when it wasn't easy to be a follower of Jesus Here's, here's the thing. We, we as believers, we should have good works. We, we, we should have some good works. Matthew 5, verse 16 says this. In the same way, let your light shine before others. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. It's not just a nursery song. So that they may see the world, that they can see your good works. And then give glory to your Father in heaven. Your good works is not about you. It's about giving glory to God. You're doing it to show people how he has already served you by sending his son to you. We we do good works. We're not not saved by our works, but we are saved unto good works. 
Let me clarify this. This, is, this will help you with Christianity 101. Christians are not doing good works to earn God's salvation. We are doing good works because we've been given salvation. We're not trying to get saved. We're not doing good works so that we can get saved. We are doing works because we have been saved. We're not saved by our works, but we're saved unto good works. If you've been saved, you will do the works that Jesus did. And so here's what he says. The last works you did are greater than the first works. I don't think he means they were doing more activities for God. I actually think he means that they were going from immaturity to maturity. Which brings me to a very important point. God expects us to grow up and mature. Let me read you a couple of scriptures. Ephesians 4:15 says this: Let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Let us grow in, grow in every way. Colossians 1 and 10. Here's what Paul says at the outset of the letter to the church at Colossae. Here's what he says. We bear fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. We get to Galatians 5. He tells us to bear fruit. We're supposed to have the fruit of, of the Spirit. Love, peace, patience, joy, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. We're supposed to continually bear fruit. Oftentimes, we think we are fruitful when we do more stuff. God would rather us be more or higher quality of Christian, not do more stuff because you can do more stuff and still have a rotten heart. He doesn't want us to be dutiful Christians where we're just accumulating stuff to do in the name of Christ, but not actually being transformed. Because when we're not being transformed, we deny the power of the gospel. Remember this, God didn't just save you to leave you the same. God saved you so that he can transform you. The gospel is not just there to just just save you and give you a little fire insurance to keep you out of hell. That's not what the gospel does. It does that, but then it makes you more like Jesus. Growing and maturity is always the expectation for a Christian. Our growth is how we give glory to God. It proves that the gospel is real. As we grow, we prove that God's salvation is powerful enough to transform us. It kills me when I see people who've been saved for five, ten years and they live like absolute heathens. That's not possible. Something's wrong there. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. Nobody reaches that. We we don't reach sinless perfection, but there should be some evidence that you are saved. And oftentimes we give up and say stuff like, this is just who I am. This is just my struggle. This is just my thing. This is just my proclivity. I'm not saying that you don't have proclivities. I'm not saying that you don't have struggle, but to give up and sit in it is to deny the power of the gospel. What you're saying is, yeah, he can save me, but he can't change me. They're one and the same. God's salvation is comprehensive. You don't just go to a restaurant and order a burger. You don't go to Chick-fil-A, let me make it. You don't just go to save sanctified Holy Ghost filled Chick-fil-A 
and, and get a sandwich. They said, do you want a meal? Of course I do. What do I look like not getting the fries to go along with this? And put some extra Polynesian sauce in this thing. Who goes to Chick-fil-A and just gets the sandwich? Nobody. Who gets saved and just gets salvation is never changed? Nobody. To not get the fries is to not have went to Chick-fil-A. To not change and bear fruit is to not have been saved. And this is what he's saying, the power of the gospel, that, that you, your, your, last works, your, your last works are greater than what you did. You are far more mature than when you first started. You, your life looks completely different. You're not settling into your sin. You're not comfortable there. You're not doing the same stuff over and over again, trying to excuse it away like, this is just me. This is where I am. I'm not saying you don't struggle, but there should be some progress over time. Time. We should see more fruit as we spend more time with God. We should not be the same person. If we are, we need to question whether we were ever saved to begin with. So here's what happens. You know what happens when you start being, being transformed by the Lord? You become less tolerant of things that you used to tolerate. You have less time for the things that used to distract you from your relationship with God. Your, old preachers say, your, your tastes change. It, it changes. Not to make it about me, when I was a college student, I think I ate McDonald's every day for four years. Do you know that McDonald's on, on Alafaya across, kind of across from, from UCF, where the little bento is over there and it's in a little apartment complex? I ate there every day for four years. It used to only be a McDonald's over there. That whole, bit, that whole thing didn't exist. It was only McDonald's. I ate there every day. I'm a grown man now. I would get sick if I ate McDonald's one day. You know what would happen to me if I would have kept eating McDonald's 20 some odd years later? I will have a poor quality of life. I'm not coming at you, McDonald's. When you leave here, go order soup, whatever, supersize whatever you want to get. I'm not condemning you. This is just an analogy. I'm not coming for you or, or the golden arch, all right? But what I'm saying is your taste buds change. It does. When you start eating real cooked food, processed food just like, ugh, Because as you are transformed, your toleration is not the same. You realize that things you used to tolerate is not beneficial for where you are now. It undermines your, your attempts to be more healthy. That's not just with physical food. That's with spiritual food. We got to get this. And so here's the thing, the idea of tolerance comes up. And here's what I want you to know. When it comes to tolerance, it's a big buzzword in our culture. Here's the thing, here's, here's the things you need to know about tolerance. We can, we can tolerate a difference of opinion with the world. They can have a different view, they can have a different vantage point, they can have a different worldview, they can have a different perspective on, on several different topics that we could talk about. And that is okay for us to uh, graciously lovingly, winsomely, 
agree to disagree, right? When it's not okay, it's when you try to force upon me to adopt, embrace, and agree with your life that I can't agree with, right? This is when we get in trouble, when we tolerate stuff because toleration leads somewhere. And we are not to tolerate everything. We can tolerate dialogue, discourse, discussion, but we can't tolerate that we adopt the life that they are trying to superimpose on us. And oftentimes, it's not that they want us to, uh, to uh, just hear their side. They want us to have full cell agreement of what they believe. And if not, you're labeled intolerant and hateful. You can't make me believe that a rainbow represents what you made it believe. My worldview says that a rainbow was what God gave to his people as a sign that he would never again destroy the earth. Case closed, period. We can't just tolerate that which undermines the work that God has done and is doing in our lives, especially in the church. It's going to get tight. Just a second. So buckle up. I'm going to read you a scripture, okay? They're like, oh, God, here you go. I'm just reading what the Lord says. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 6, 14 through 16. I'm going somewhere with this. Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness. How can light live with darkness? Pause. You ever thought about that? What happens when you turn the light on? The darkness disappears. It can't be dark and light at the same. But that's what we're trying to do. Anyway, 15. What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? This is what's going on in the text. This is what is going on in the t- right here, what Paul talks about uh, in the second letter to the church at Corinth. This is what is happening in the text. He's telling them, you can't tolerate certain stuff. Tolerance leads somewhere. Here's what G.K. Chesterton said, a theologian said this about tolerance. He says, tolerance is the virtue of men who don't believe in anything. When you tolerate stuff, that really just shows that you have no convictions. Remember when I said tolerance goes somewhere? A wise theologian said this. Here's what this wise theologian said. He said this. Tolerance eventually, what? What happened? Tolerance eventually leads to acceptance, agreement, and then eventual participation. It's inevitable. No wonder this is the longest and most severe rebuke of all seven letters. This is how serious this idea of tolerance is. Let's read what he says in verses 20 through 23. Let's read this. But I have this against you. You what? 
You what? You what? You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I I gave her time to repent, but she doesn't want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, here's here's what's going to happen. I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. Unless, here's the hope of the gospel, unless there's always hope, unless they repent of her works. If not, I'll strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I'm the one who examines minds and hearts. Remember the fiery eyes with the flames? He can see right through you. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Let's talk about Jezebel. Lord have mercy. If you've grown up in church for, if you've been to church 10 times in your life, just 10, you've heard of somebody having the Jezebel spirit. Jesus, help us. Lord have mercy. She's more famous than Jesus. If your skirt is not down to your ankles, you got the Jezebel spirit. In some churches, if you wear a little makeup, a little mascara, Jezebel spirit. If, God forbid, you wear a short haircut, Jezebel spirit. Put on a tinge of perfume, Jezebel spirit. Well, here's the truth. This is typically thrown on to single women. Jezebel is actually married. She's a foreign woman. And she's an unbeliever. We meet her in the Old Testament, the book of 1 Kings. I, it behoove you to read all about her. Gives a, a lot of insight about her character. She's an unbeliever from a place called Sidon. She's actually a princess because her father is the king. She marries one of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel by the name of Ahab. Ahab marries Jezebel, a foreign woman, which he shouldn't have done because God don't tolerate idolatry and hooking up with pagan women. He he marries her for political reasons because her father is a king in another country and he's thinking economically, not spiritually. So he marries this woman. And of course, her being a pagan woman, she has brought her false rendition of spirituality and religion with her, and she has influenced her Israelite husband into adopting her pagan spirituality. And so before there were any social media influencers, we meet the first influencer right here, and her name is Jezebel. And at Jezebel's behest, he listens to her. And idolatry is spreading all over Israel because of Jezebel. And so he probably 
thought that, you know what, I could take, I could take a little bit of paganism. We can take a little paganism because it was believed that the gods that she worshipped brought economic prosperity to the land. And, and, and so even in that, they would do some sort of sexual uh, prostitution ritual to go along with it. And so he's like, yo, if I marry this woman, her father is the king. And if we adopt her religion or her spirituality, we can get some of those economic benefits in the land. And here's what ends up happening. Idolatry spreads all across Israel. If you know anything about the Old Testament, what is the first thing that God tells the people of Israel to do once he brings them out of Egyptian bondage? Thou shall have no other gods before me. If he expected that to Israel at large, what does he expect for a king whose responsibility is to lead the people's hearts to God? And Ahab is listening to Jezebel. She ends up killing several prophets. So much so that they, she's such a bad chick, they go into hiding. She also convinces her husband to take advantage of this man named Naboth about a vineyard. And, and so he comes home one day. Ahab come home. He, he's, he's distraught because he couldn't convince this guy to sell his vineyard. And Jezebel says, boy, what is wrong with you? Get up. Stop all that crying. You little softy. I, I got a plan. And so she gets this elaborate plan and takes the land from Naboth. And her husband lets her do it. And here's what the Bible says about Ahab. Pay attention. Here's what he says. Ahab did more to anger the Lord God of Israel than all of the Israelite kings before him. He made God more mad than anybody else. Almost 250 years, 19 kings in the northern kingdom, and he made God more mad than anybody. I get it if you are a bad employee, but the worst ever? I get, I get it if you're not your boss's favorite, but you are the worst employee that they ever had at the job. Even a job that you was kind of eh at or give you a recommendation. But he's the worst because he marries the wrong woman. Let me say this real quick. Give me some time for this. Who you hook up with matters. Who you connect to matters. Holy Spirit, please let this grip the hearts of your people. Who you marry matters. Your sexual desire to hook up cannot circumvent a world of hurt that will come along with being hooked up with somebody that you're not supposed to be hooked up with. Who you marry matters. Philip Grimreichen says this, coldest thing I ever read in my life. Here's what he says. Marriage does not leave us where we are, but moves us in a spiritual direction. Let me say this again for the people who ain't trying to hear what I'm trying to say. Marriage does not leave us where we are, but moves us in a spiritual direction. Either your spouse will make you more godly or make you more worldly. 
here's what I want to tell you. Well, I'm strong in my faith. I have yet to see the strong in the faith one overcome the unsaved one. Your partner will influence you. That's not just in marriage. That's also in the church. Who we partner with in the church matters. Who we let teach in the church matters. And so here's what John says, what Jesus says to John. There's Jezebel there in Theatira. Now let me clear something up for you. The person in the congregation is not named Jezebel. She's like Jezebel. She's influencing people to adopt false spirituality and false idolatry. She's, she's, he, and so he's not, this, this actually is not Jezebel. So when the people be right, the people be like, she got a Jezebel spirit. This is kind of what Jesus is saying here. This is a Jezebel, this is a Jezebel. It has nothing to do with makeup and long skirts and, and pants and short hair. But it has to do with what she is influencing people to do. And so he assigns her the name Jezebel because of the way that she is conducting herself in the church. And apparently this woman is well known in the congregation and she's influencing a small number of people. And that's important because a little leaven leavens a whole batch of dough. She don't need the whole church. She just need a couple of rebellious people to go along with her nonsense. And notice she calls herself a prophet. He says she calls herself. Jesus is throwing all kinds of shade. He says she calls herself a prophet because she's acting like Jezebel and teaching and deceiving people to follow her teaching. And what is she teaching? She's encouraging the believers at Theatira to participate in the festivals and feasts of the trade gals that we talked about. She said, eat the meat, be sexual, show a little something, something. It's okay. Mingle with the people at the pagan festivals. Go to the little jump off. Do the little thing. Hang out with them. Show them that Christians can have fun too. You don't have to be different because of your faith in Christ. He forgives you. Don't you guys talk about forgiveness? Just a little bit ain't never hurt nobody. She's not influencing everybody. She's influencing a small amount of people. And here's what I think gives her validity. Because she calls herself a prophetess. Nobody made her a prophetess. It's a self-proclaimed title that she gives herself. I'm always amazed at people in the body of Christ that has all these titles. I'm the chief apostolic overseer of the prophets of the nations international. What is that, man? Why do you need all these titles? I'm the chief prelate overseer of the apostolic commission of the what? She calls herself a prophet. I, I imagine she probably had a few thousand followers on TikTok. A few thousand followers on Instagram. 
She probably had about 1,500 little followers on YouTube. And she, tells, she says, God has revealed, things to me, revealed things to me that are not in the word. He's showing me things. So she's offering special revelation for her special members for a small fee. If you just sign up for my little conference, just pay this small fee. I got, I got some access to the throne room of God that, that you don't have. I'm hearing things now. And, and if for a small fee, God, God has revealed some things to me for people who are willing to sow. If you take my course, you'll have spiritual and financial freedom. Notice what Jezebel is not doing. She's not encouraging them to abandon Christianity. She's just saying, have a little Jesus and a little something else to add to it. If you just do this, it's all right. She, she doesn't, she, when she prophesies, she doesn't call people to repentance. She calls you to sow. Because if you sow, you're going to write a book. If you sow, you're going to get a Range Rover. If you sow, you're going to live in a mansion. If you sow, if you sow you're going to have a business. If you sow, all of your debt's going to be paid off, even if you don't budget ever. But you just got to pay this fee. I'm not concerned about your sin. Do your thing. And so you walk away from Jezebel's conference. And you walk away from Jezebel's little Bible study. And you say, I'm pursuing Jesus. I'm praying in the morning, doing my daily devotionals, serving in the church, giving a tithe, and sleeping with my boyfriend. I think this is the quietest this church has ever been in, in its history. <laughs> I think even when we're not here, it's not this quiet. <laughs> this is the quietest it's ever been on, in a record in history. It's not only the hottest year ever, it's the quietest year ever. <laughs> I'm just saying what the Lord says. Because Jezebel helps you discover God's will for your life. I got, I got God's will for your life. It's in my mouth. Question people who are deeper than God. Here's what the Lord says through Paul in plain words. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. For this is God's will, your sanctification. You should underline that, circle that, highlight that, do whatever you, tear it out your Bible and put it on your wall. That you keep away from sexual immorality. That each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. I don't, I'm just trying to discover God's will for my life. What you're really saying is, I want to know what, what God wants me to work. I want to know what city God wants me to move to. I want to know who God wants me to marry. Well, well, what's most important above all of those things is, are you obeying God? Because if you marry the right person and you get the great job and you have the money, but you don't follow God, it doesn't matter what God's will is for your life because you're not obeying God. So what she's teaching, yeah, I can be a part of the association and I, and I, can, I can be a part of the little, the little thing. I can, I can join the thing. I can be a part of it and pay the little dues and, and I can act like I don't know God for a few hours amongst my peers 
and then go to church and serve on the worship team and play in the band. There's another record. It's quiet as ever. You got to compromise so you don't lose all the the opportunities. You got to compromise so so that you're not seen as lame. You got to compromise so that you can keep your rep intact. Trust me, you can do both. You can have one foot in and one foot out because God will forgive you. And what they don't know is that she is luring people in and making disciples for the devil. She is not trained, learned, or sat down anywhere long enough to teach anybody. But yet she's calling herself a prophet. Always be skeptical of people who desire to teach but have no desire to be taught. Always be skeptical of people who have a desire to teach, but no desire to be taught. You're giving me financial advice? Let me see your budget. You're giving me relationship advice? Last time I checked, you walked in here by yourself. You telling me about my diet? Girl, bye. (laughs) But you tolerate when you don't know any better. Jesus' problem with the church at Theatira is that they are tolerating Jezebel in the congregation. They're loving people, loving God, serving, faithful, and enduring, but they fail to take responsibility for her influence in the congregation. They refuse to put a stop to it. They're letting her perpetuate her nonsense. They're letting him perpetuate his nonsense in the congregation because Jezebel is not just going to be a woman. This could have been a guy too. You know what they were saying in the name of tolerance? Well, who am I to say anything? Who am I to judge? I'm not perfect. You don't have to be perfect to bring correction. Because when you don't say something to people who perpetrate false doctrine, you are culpable. You are just as culpable as they are. The real problem is not just that the doctrine is false, but it's leading people to destruction and it is the work of the devil. That's why false teaching is so uh, so detrimental. That's why God hates it, because it leads people to destruction. It is Satan's work. It's not just something casual or something uh, uh, haphazard. It is that series that is leading people astray and away from the faith. And we can't tolerate it as a church. And so what we have to do is we have to do something. And here's what we have to do. And I'm going to speed up. We have to be so familiar with the truth that we can call out what's false. We have to lovingly pray for the perpetrator. 
We have to lovingly confront the perpetrator and participators. We have to show them love and then show them the scriptures. We have to exclude them from the church if they are unrepentant. Why? Because we want to protect the peace and purity of the church, but we also want to restore them if they've compromised. But the only way to do that is to shut them out first. So he calls them to repent, and she refuses to repent. Says she doesn't even want to. She's unwilling to change. Her unwillingness actually proves that she doesn't belong to God. Whenever people don't repent of their sins, that's proof that they may not be saved. Christians are people who continually repent. Repentance is not, God, forgive me, and then I go back. Repentance literally means to turn. Not 360. This is not a slam dunking contest. A 180. To turn from sin and turn towards Christ. And this is what he asked her to do, and she refused to do it. And so he says, my punishment to that is that I'm going to throw her into sickness, and I'm going to strike her children dead. This is exactly what happened to Jezebel in the Old Testament. Jezebel is sitting upstairs one day by a window, and she's just out looking, probably plotting and scheming her next move. And these men come into the house. And they take her and they toss Jezebel out the window. She falls to her death, but that's not enough. To show you how serious God is, dogs come and they tear her carcass apart. The only thing left is her palms, her head, and her feet. Because that's how serious God takes deception in the church. And he kills her children. But what he's saying here is for this Jezebel in the church, when he says, I'm going to strike her children dead. He's not talking about her actual children. He's talking about her spiritual children. Because whatever you teach, you duplicate. Christians are not the only ones who make disciples. Satan makes disciples too. When Satan fell, he didn't fall by himself. He took a host of others with him. The plan is never just to get rid of you. The plan is to get rid of everybody connected to you. So, there's still hope. He says that they, they can repent. And here's what you need to know about the good news. Jesus took on the punishment that Jezebel deserved. If you've dabbled in false doctrine, if you've partnered with unbelievers, if you dabbled in that kind of life, there is hope for you because Jesus has took on the punishment that we deserve on the cross. Even if you've held on to false teaching or you've perpetuated it, Jesus has taken on the penalty of sin that we deserve. He satisfied that on the cross. The judgment that is deserved was poured out on Jesus. His blood was shed and he died the death that we deserve to die. And as the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5, 
5.21, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. So here's what he says to the rest of you in Theotira who don't hold this teaching. I don't put nothing else on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. And what do they have? They have the good news of the gospel. The good news and what he's telling them to hold on to is the good news that Jesus, through his sacrificial death on the cross, has saved them. He has redeemed them from their sin and brought forth forgiveness. The resurrection has brought them forth in a new life. They were once dead in their sins and their trespasses, and now they have been made alive and they have been made new. And so he's telling them, hold on to the gospel and the growth that the gospel brings. Keep your spiritual progress. Keep growing in character. Keep growing in Christ's likeness. Grow for the rest of your life because Spiritual maturity is a journey unto death. Remain faithful in your character. Continue to grow in everything that you do. I want to read one more scripture to you. Here's what it says in 1 Peter 2, 2 through 3. Here's what it says. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. If... You have tasted that the Lord is good. Nobody takes one bite of their favorite meal and walk away. What do you do? You keep on eating. Keep on tasting that the Lord is good. Keep on growing in your faith. God calls us, and I'm done. God doesn't just call us to good works. God calls us to good character. We ought to pursue both at the same time because ultimately we are demonstrating to the world what life with God looks like. We are demonstrating to the world what the kingdom of God is like. But when we compromise and we tolerate, we lose our distinctiveness. My last word to you is this. Faithfulness to Christ may cost us in the short short run in terms of economic and social status. However, faithfulness means that we'll come come out on top eternally. We're not living for today. We're living for eternity. So the next time you're tempted to compromise or tolerate. You got to remember, no, not today, Satan. God is doing something in my life. I'm going somewhere. I'm not lost. I'm not having an identity crisis. I know who I am. I know whose I am, and I know where he's taking me. You can only be grounded and sure of that when you are resting in the goodness of God in Christ Jesus. And so it is time for the church to engage the world without adopting the world's ways. God has called us to be salt and light to the world. He's not calling us to fit in and get in. He's calling us to engage without accommodating. He's calling us 
to be a prophetic witness. The one who is, who was, and is to come. Let us pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.